From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, December 14th. I'm Marco Werman. A shooting at an elementary school in Connecticut shocks America and the globe. Our newscast will have the latest details in just a moment. Later in the program, we'll hear from Egypt, where tensions are running high ahead of a constitutional referendum, plus strange drug smuggling schemes along the U.S.-Mexico border, including one involving a van and a parking spot in Arizona. So in about 45 minutes, the smugglers could hand over hand just uh, feed packages of marijuana into the van. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Before we get into what's happening around the globe today, terrible news to report closer to home. A school shooting in Connecticut. Officials say 27 people were killed at an elementary school, 20 of them children. This afternoon, President Obama was visibly moved when he reacted to the tragic news. He said that, like any parent, he felt an overwhelming grief. As a country, we have been through this too many times. Whether it's an elementary school in Newton or a shopping mall in Oregon or a temple in Wisconsin or a movie theater in Aurora or a street corner in Chicago, these neighborhoods are our neighborhoods and these children are our children. And we're going to have to come together and take meaningful action to prevent more tragedies like this, regardless of the politics. The U.S. is not the only country to experience these kinds of tragedies, but as the president pointed out, we do experience them with alarming regularity. The news has reignited debate over gun control. White House spokesman Jay Carney said earlier that there will be a day for that, but today, he said, is not that day. In Egypt, tensions remain high as the country prepares for a key vote that starts tomorrow. Egyptians will be casting ballots for or against a controversial draft constitution. President Mohamed Morsi and his Islamist supporters are urging approval of the draft. Opposition leaders, upset by the fact that the constitution was written mostly by the Islamists, want Egyptians to reject it. Today, there were more demonstrations in the Egyptian capital. The world's Matthew Bell went to one Cairo neighborhood that's been at the heart of the unrest. Heliopolis is a well-to-do area on the outskirts of Cairo. Known for its wide boulevards and palatial villas, it's long been home to the rich and powerful, including former President Hosni Mubarak. The presidential palace is also here, where Mohamed Morsi now lives. For the last couple of weeks, this part of Heliopolis near the palace finds itself on the front lines of the political fight for Egypt's future. Unfamiliar sights include protests, tanks positioned on the street, occasional street battles, and roads blocked by concrete barricades. The sales clerk at the Grandpa Hussein toy store shows off a musical yellow ducky to some prospective customers. Shop owner Mustafa Hussein doesn't want to talk about politics. 
but he says the protests are killing his business. Our customers are middle-class people who usually come with their kids, Hussein says. When the protesters show up, customers are scared away, and we just close the shop. Hopefully, he adds, this won't go on for much longer. The line at the Abu Haider shawarma shop stretches across the sidewalk. 18-year-old dentistry student Rana Ahmed is here with some of her friends, all of them in hip clothes and headscarves. She says she'll be voting yes in tomorrow's referendum. I don't know about constitutions, Ahmed says, but people who do know seem to think this is one of the best in the world, so I'm going to vote yes. The country needs to move on, she says. Talking with people on the street in Heliopolis, it's pretty clear that most have not read the draft constitution themselves. For people like Ibrahim Ahmed, 38 years old and a manager at a children's clothing shop, this is a referendum on the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist group from which President Morsi emerged. The Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party, Ahmed says, is trying to take over. President Morsi is acting like a dictator, he adds. That's why I will be voting no to this constitution. On that note, his colleague from the clothing store, Mohammed, chimes in. We are Muslims, he says. The Muslim Brotherhood talks as if it is protecting Islamic Sharia law and that we are against it. Mohammed says that's not true. We support Sharia, but not the Muslim Brotherhood. Down the street, at a tiny butcher shop, a young man making beef sausages by hand tells me these are confusing times in Egypt. He says he wants the protests to stop because they're really hurting his business. We make a living here day by day, he says. People should just let the president get on with his job. When I ask about the Constitution, he says he doesn't know much about it and doesn't really understand what it's all about. But having to close up shop early and being hit by a rock during a demonstration... He's clearly not happy about the political fight that's playing out here on the streets of Heliopolis. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. The fighting in Syria is on a completely different scale than the political social unrest in Egypt. In Syria, it's all-out civil war. Rebels remain determined to push President Bashar al-Assad from power, but Bashar and his regime aren't budging. The conflict, though, is closing in on the Syrian capital, Damascus. There were a series of bomb attacks in and around the city this week. Freelance reporter Mikel Ayestaran left Damascus just yesterday. He says the war has come to the outskirts of the city. I think right now there are two different Damascus. One thing is what's going on in downtown or in the first ring of the capital. And uh, totally different is uh, what's going on outside Damascus in the, in the countryside, uh, in places like Duma, Harasta, Sakba, are absolutely out of the control of the of the government and the civilians caught in, in the middle suffer right now from food, gas or power shortages. The, the situation is becoming more and more complicated for, for the civilians and, and let's see what's happening in the, in, in the next days because the, the winter now is, is really very hard. So uh, how close did you get to the fighting that's happening just outside the Damascus city limits? Yeah, the, the fight is, is going on uh, street by street right now in many places, uh, even in the first ring 
of uh, Damascus, you don't, there is no a clear line, a clear border between the, the two sides. So in places like uh, Jarmuk, refugee camp, for example, the difference between the two lines is just one straight. Wow. So in the center of Damascus, right in the center of the city, is it calm or is there fighting there as well? The, the center is calm and the shops are open, restaurants working. You can see a lot of people really these, these days, especially because all these people from the, all these civilians from the outside Damascus are now living in the, in the very center of the capital. This is the last part that the regime has really in control. I mean, the presence of the security forces is, is really heavy in, the, in this central Damascus, but only in the first three, not more. Right. So in other parts of Damascus, how are civilians actually feeling the effects of the war? Are, are, are there any shortages of food and fuel? Yeah, this is what's happening in central Damascus. There are shortages, really, of food, gas, and, and power. Uh, now, for example, if you want to buy bread in Damascus, you need to be in queue for at least three hours. This is the first time that uh, Damascus has this situation. Freelance reporter Mikel Ayesteran speaking with us from Cairo. He left Damascus, the Syrian capital, just yesterday. You can follow some of his Syria reporting at The Daily Beast. Mikel, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. A little more than a year ago, the fighting in Libya was still raging. Then came news of the fall of Muammar Gaddafi and his subsequent capture and death. Reporter Maureen Olivezi is a frequent contributor from Libya, and she was the first Western journalist to view Gaddafi's corpse. I spoke with Maureen yesterday in Boston, and she told me about her surreal hunt to find the dictator's remains. It was October 20th, 2011. She was in Sirte, where Gaddafi was said to have been hiding. Then she said a crazy rumor started going around that Gaddafi had been captured and that he was dead, but there was no information on where his body might be. So Maureen headed to Misrata to check the morgue. In Misrata, everybody was celebrating and was sure that Gaddafi was dead, but nobody knew where he was. And on various news channels, Al Jazeera was saying he was at a souk, Al Arabiya was saying he was at a mosque, but no one had pictures. So me and another photographer, we, we kept going to these places and we didn't find Gaddafi's body. We didn't find an indication he was, he was dead or alive. And at one point, we received a tip from a businessman we met a few days before who tell us that he can help. He's a little mysterious. We're not really sure where we're going with that. But And he arranged to pick us up. And we exit Misrata. We really have no idea where we're going. And we arrive at that mansion, a really nice residence outside of Misrata, with hundreds of people gathering outside. And we are really pulled in that sort of garage. And when we arrive there, we cannot even see anything. And really, when we're pulled really up close, we see lying down the bodies of both Muammar Gaddafi and his son, Mutasim Gaddafi, just there. Marine said at that point it wasn't clear that even the authorities knew Gaddafi and his son were in that house in Misrata. Marine Olivezi went back to that city a year later, and she said life in Misrata has pretty much returned to normal. But you can see signs that people don't want to forget what happened there. So you have businesses that have moved back in the stores and rebuilt completely the first floor of the stores. But then you have buildings in the second, third floors that are still completely shattered. And some people wanted to stay that way as a reminder, a daily reminder of the suffering and what they, they've been through. Misrata is really the town that probably paid the highest price and the number of people who, who died during the siege of Misrata is, of all the towns of Libya, the highest. And they just make the case that they want 
want people to have a daily reminder of how much it took for them to topple Gaddafi. So visually, what does it look like? Storefronts on the ground near the street, kind of very flashy and spruced up, and the building above it just kind of still pockmarked and, and shattered? Exactly. The first building that I saw when I arrived on Tripoli Street a couple of months ago, it was that very nice bridal store with those really fancy, nice white wedding dress. Mm. And then you look up and you see a second floor that's still completely destroyed, blackened by smoke and craters. So you have that contrast. Now, Marine, many of these countries in North Africa and Libya is no exception, have this really bulging population between the ages of 18 and 30. What's it been like for these people, the youth, effectively, going through a transition from Gaddafi, the only leader they ever knew in their whole lives, to now essentially a blank slate? Well, really, these people that you described, guys in their early 20s, these are the ones who fought. A lot of them spend months with their Kalashnikovs enrolling in these militias, these katibas, and fighting the regime. And these young people, what really strikes me every time I go back there is that I find them quite depressed. And this is not a feeling that's going away. I felt that a few days after Muammar Gaddafi was killed when you had that realization that it was over. And that what are we going to do with our lives? Because the choice quite quickly was between going back to school or finding a job. or But none of that seemed too appealing after months of really being pumped on adrenaline and being on you know high on action. And a year later, I see the same people who basically are either trying to get visa to go to Europe, to spend some time in Turkey, to just get out of the daily life. But they are still very depressed and not sure how to find that sense of excitement and camaraderie that they had before. So it, it is a population that is not struggling economically the way the Tunisians are, for instance, because jobs are there. I mean, they, they're making money. So it's not really about being jobless. It's more, you know, how do you go from these eight months of action and empowerment to going back to regular dull life? Well, Marine Olavezi, thank you for coming in and thanks for uh, covering this part of the world. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Still ahead, all the Chinese who worry about the Mayan calendar and the end of days on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. Mexico's drug war is a deadly serious matter. Some 60,000 people have been killed there over the past six years, and the drugs keep flowing north by any means the cartels can think of. We definitely don't want to make light of the violence and suffering that the drug war causes, but some of the methods drug smugglers use to get their illicit goods north of the border can be kind of humorous. The New Yorker's Patrick Red and Keefe documents the most outlandish stories from the Mexican drug war in a new article. He joins me on the line from Washington. Uh, you talk about the inherent looniness of the drug war in Mexico. Give us a prime example of just how strange a story can get. Well, I mean, I think, you know, some of it is just that you get this Tom and Jerry type game between the smugglers and the authorities, where the authorities will do something to stop the drugs from coming across the border, and, and the smugglers will kind of try anything once. So uh, one example, and there's a great image of this is that they erected a border fence down in uh, in Arizona outside Yuma to try and stop smugglers from coming across. And what the smugglers did was they actually built ramps up one side of the fence and down the other and tried to drive a Jeep right over full of drugs. 
The problem is the Jeep got stuck at the top, <laughs> so they abandoned it. So you have this kind of amazing image of a Jeep sitting on top of this uh, border fence. It starts to get surreal, some of this stuff. You document stories about drug cartels funding productions of religious films uh, here in the U.S., about like the Knights Templar getting involved, about laundering money through racehorses. Who comes up with this stuff? Well, they're really creative. I mean, we don't know exactly the size of the drug trade between Mexico and the United States, but the low estimate is it's, it's sort of six to seven billion dollars a year, and the high estimates are thirty-nine, forty billion dollars a year. So you can imagine there's a lot of incentive for people to be creative. The ingenuity on the part of some of these smugglers is pretty astonishing. Yeah. So there's one story you tell about a parking spot in Nogales, Arizona. Yeah, I think of this as, as the most valuable parking spot in America. There was this one parking spot kind of close to the border. What would happen is from time to time, a van would come and pull into the space. And there was actually a hole in the ground underneath that had been very cleverly camouflaged. And there was a kind of a concrete plug that was kept in place by a hydraulic jack. So that would lower. There'd be a hole in the bottom of the van. And it turns out that this was actually a tunnel that ran right underneath the border. And so in about 45 minutes, the smugglers could hand over hand just uh, feed packages of marijuana into the van. It was about a million dollars worth they could do in 45 minutes. And then the van would drive off. The plug would be put back in place. The next person would pull into the spot and nobody was any the wiser. It's such an extraordinary story. How did uh, that, that little plot get discovered? I, I, you, know, you know, I don't know, actually. There were a series of... I mean, Nogales is actually famous because it's just... Um, the earth underneath that uh, that part of the border must be uh, like Swiss cheese. There are tons and tons of holes and tunnels that have been dug through over the years. And so there's been ongoing investigations, and they're forever um, discovering tunnels. You actually get funny stories of um, occasionally you'll have uh, uh, drug smugglers tunneling through underneath the ground, and they'll actually bump it. They'll sort of accidentally bump into another tunnel. You know, you'll actually get <laughs> smugglers bumping into each other and these, these tunnels crisscrossing. So I think probably what happened in that instance was that they, they found the tunnel first and then found the uh, the hole. As you point out, it's not all funny little sidebars to the drug war. I mean, at the end of the piece, you discuss the recent legalization of marijuana in Colorado and Washington State and say that from the cartel's point of view, this has to be the most outlandish story of 2012. Why do they see it that way? Well, I think for the cartels, it's, it's a dangerous development because the reason that their industry is, uh, is so successful is because of prohibition in the United States. So the long-term prospects of a situation in which the U.S. starts to relax its drug laws in a state-by-state -state way is actually a very threatening one for the cartels. I also think for, for the average Mexican, the fact that we would legalize marijuana must be troubling to observe in some ways, because if you think about it, in the last six or seven years, about 60,000 people have lost their lives in the drug war. And that's in part because Mexico has really been cracking down on these cartels. And they've been doing that in part because the United States government in Washington has been urging them to. Marijuana is one of the big products for the cartels. By mm -hmm. some estimates, it's up to 40 percent of their revenue. So the notion that they would crack down and lose a lot of lives trying to stop the smuggling into the United States, and then we would say, you know what? We're going to make it legal here after all. <laughs> Must uh, make them scratch their heads. Yeah. So what creative angles will the cartels be dreaming up next to counter the, uh, the, this wave of legalization of marijuana? Well, you name it. I mean, one thing they're doing is investing very heavily in, in methamphetamine, uh, which many of them perceive to be the, the future. There are some incredible right. stories about the kind of business savvy of the cartels. But about 10 years ago, when they realized that meth was, was going to be a big drug in the U.S., what they would do is actually some of the cartels would send shipments of marijuana to their clients in the Midwest, and they would actually send free samples of methamphetamine. First taste is free, as they say. In this instance, I think that was actually literally the, the business strategy. 
Patrick Radden Keefe of The New Yorker will link to your story about the year's most outlandish drug stories from the drug war in Mexico. That'll be at theworld.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. We shift our attention now from our nearly 2,000-mile border with Mexico to Uruguay in South America. That small nation sandwiched between giants Brazil and Argentina seems to be leading a charge for social changes that could impact all of Latin America. This year, Uruguay became the first Latin American nation to legalize abortion. Lawmakers there are also considering legalizing marijuana, putting the government in charge of pot sales, and now gay marriage. The lower house of the Uruguayan Congress this week approved a bill that would allow same-sex marriages. The world's William Troop is following this story. And William, how big a deal was this vote by Uruguayan lawmakers? Uh, It's a pretty big deal uh, regionally. If it's passed into law, it would make Uruguay only the second Latin American nation after Argentina to legalize gay marriage on a national basis. And it is very likely to go into law. Uh, It goes next to the Uruguayan Senate, where it has uh, support. And Uruguay's uh, leftist president, Jose Mujica, has already said he plans to sign it. So the bill is called the Marriage Equality Law. That suggests it's putting all marriages on an equal footing. Does it do more than legalize gay marriage? Uh, In fact, it does. It it actually changes some of the rules that are related to marriage that that, uh, traditionally Latin America have something to do with a a man and a woman being Mm -hmm. the bride and the groom. For example, it changes uh, the law on divorce for uh, Uruguayan couples. Up to now and for the past 100 years, only women could uh, file for divorce without cause. Men could not, and that's uh, apparently a a law that was passed 100 years ago to give women uh, some power since in in traditional Latin American society they had very little. Wow. Uruguay going where other countries in Latin America haven't, um, giving their men a little something and taking off the bonds of oppression. (laughs) Um, The law also affects how you name your kids, apparently? Yeah, it does. Um, it, It actually tries to make that gender neutral as well. Up to now, and uh, following the tradition that is actually law in all of Spanish-speaking Latin America, uh, you have to give your children two last names, one from the father's side of the family and one from the mother's side of the family, and in that order, father first, mother second. Uh, What the Uruguayan law does now is it allows couples to choose the order. Uh, If it's a heterosexual couple, uh, the mother's name can come first, uh, provided that the husband agrees. If it's a same-sex couple... Um, they can agree on whichever name they want to go first. And if they don't agree, it's actually down literally to the luck of the draw. Wow. Uruguay really shaking up the rule book here. Yeah, they they are. Uh, Basically, there's a leftist president, a leftist coalition that's ruling Uruguay right now, and they seem to be going full force forward where other Latin American nations are debating many of these changes from uh, abortion and divorce and gay marriage. Uruguay is pressing forward. They have the votes to change these laws now, and they're doing it. The world's William Troop. Thank you. Thank you. Williams also posted a blog about how the changes in Uruguay could change the rules for how you name your kids across Latin America. That's at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a Burmese publication critical of the regime finally goes on sale in Myanmar. Also, we'll hear about superstition running rampant in China, plus why some superstitious Israeli soldiers are resisting an order that ends one of their traditions. Those stories are ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report 
online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. According to one interpretation of the Mayan calendar, a largely discredited one, the apocalypse is coming on December 21st, next Friday. But plenty of people here and around the world are taking it seriously. In France, some have converged on a mountain to await the end of time. In Russia, there's been a run on essential supplies. But a survey from earlier this year says China ranks highest when it comes to end-of-the-world fears. About 20% of people there say they're making preparations. Here's the world's Mary Kay Magstad. My housekeeper, Ho Jin Rong, asked me today if I think it's true that the world will end next week. I heard that December the 21st, 2012, it's also on that day when winter comes. I heard it's the end of the world. So if the world still exists, that means there would be no sun, no sunlight. So people now in the countryside, every family are rushing to buy candles and to store these candles at home. Ho says that includes her own relatives back in her village in the central province of Hunan. She thinks they're being a little superstitious. But then again... I cannot tell them not to do it because I don't know whether it's true. What if it's true? Oh, they'll blame me for that. You've got to give people points for optimism when they think the end of the world would still leave both them and their family members alive and well and able to continue to rag on each other. In China, the concern that everything might come to a skidding halt on December 21st came in part... From this. this mass suicide adhered to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year. The film, 2012, was a smash hit here. Add that to the mix in a place where rumors and panic have been known to spread quickly and where social networking turbocharges that process. 17-year-old high school student Pang Yanting says her friends are exchanging ideas. They just talk about it. They're reposting stories about it in a, a QQ online space. It's a, it's a blog. And uh, they just talk about, like, uh, who do you want to spend the last day with? Pang says she wants to spend December 21st with her family, just in case. On the street, a young advertising copywriter named Guan Chang pauses between drags on his cigarette and looks amused when I ask if he thinks the world will end in eight days. <laughs> because CCTV didn't say. <laughs> so CCTV doesn't have it, it can't possibly be true, huh? <laughs> yes, he says, trying to keep a straight face. If China's central television, the government mouthpiece, isn't calling the end of the world, move on, have another cigarette. But Guan admits that even some of his friends, educated urban young professionals, are laying in provisions. Yeah, I heard a lot of my friends are talking about it. Uh, they say it, uh, there, are three, there will be three days, it's going to be really cold, and people will spend the three days in dark. Darkness. And after that, it'll be okay? Yeah. Right, he says. There's that mix of optimism and pragmatism again. Others in China are making more elaborate preparations. One guy used his life savings to build an ark, like Noah. 
my housekeeper, Ho Jin Rong, is pretty stoic about the whole thing. Who knows what will happen? It might be earthquake, it might be tsunami or volcano eruptions. You may die, you may not die. When I was young, my mom told me the end of the world is going to be scary. A lot of scary things, weird things will happen. Or not. I ask Ho if she's scared of what might happen next week. She laughs. What's the point of being scared, she asks. I have to get on with my life. Still, she'll have the candles, just in case. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. There's been a controversy in the Israeli army this year, and it also has to do with superstition, not about the end of the world, but about the end of a tradition among paratroopers. The army has banned soldiers in one battalion from wearing a medallion deemed offensive to women. The soldiers aren't happy about it, and in a country where most people are required to serve in the army, this has become a national debate. Reporter Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv has more on the controversial medallion Israeli paratroopers call patchouli. You may remember hippies in the 60s wearing necklaces with tiny vials of patchouli oil. It's amber-colored and has a musky fragrance. And as the story goes, hippies would wear it to cover up the smell of smoking or drug use or not showering for a few days. In the 202 Battalion of the Israeli paratroopers, patchouli vials are fabled to carry an entirely different liquid, as former paratrooper Eli Levy explained to me at the coffee shop where he works. A warning to listeners that this is a bit suggestive. The story tells that soldiers uh, in the beginning put a perfume of their girlfriends. Afterwards, they put something else. It's a special liquid. You know, people listening to this will think this is absolutely disgusting and wrong and disrespectful of women. I think from like thousand people who wear the patchouli, I think maybe if like few of them really do this like by the by the book. Some of them uh, put alcohol. Some of them put nothing. But no matter what is or isn't actually inside most of the patchouli vials, the army could no longer tolerate the symbolism of what it might be. They claim the custom is degrading to women and unbecoming of Israeli combat soldiers. This summer, the army banned paratroopers in the 202 battalion from wearing the pendants. The soldiers' response to that patchouli ban wasn't pretty. An Israeli TV report showed tables and equipment that recruits had strewn around their base near the border with Lebanon. Then this month, eight soldiers were reportedly booted out of the unit because they refused to comply with the patchouli ban. This is one soldier interviewed for the TV report. His voice is garbled, so it can't be identified. He justified the protest. When your soul hurts, he says, you can't function. Levy, the former paratrooper, agrees. When he served from 2001 to 2004, he filled his patchouli vial necklace with his girlfriend's Armani perfume. Back then, he didn't have a cell phone and would go weeks without contacting his girlfriend. So when he was on guard duty or after he returned from a mission, the patchouli vial would comfort him. After, I I took a good shower. I went to sleep after two or three days without regular sleeping. I open it, smell it, close it, go to sleep, smiling. Levy says soldiering is tough work, with long stretches of intense boredom or incredible fear, and often no trips home. 
Levy says the patchouli pendant was that one special thing that kept up soldiers' morale. If they serve almost for free their country, let them do what they want. So if it's making them happy, and it's really not that offending because this is only a story that men invented, okay? So let them do it. The patchouli tradition has persisted for about three decades. The last time the Israeli army reportedly tried to stop it was three years ago. Soldiers revolted, summoning the spirit of a leader of the Israelites, at least on the silver screen. From my cold, dead hands. Former NRA president and one-time Moses, Charlton Heston. After that revolt, by the way, patchouli was back in until it was banned again this summer. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Tel Aviv. For our GeoQuiz today, we're looking for a city in southeast Cuba. About a quarter of a million people live there. To the north are Cuba's Sierra Maestra Mountains. To the south, the Caribbean Sea. And nearby is a famous bay which shares its name with the city. Columbus and his crew called it Puerto Grande. Today we call it by a name that's become synonymous for terrorist prison and military tribunal. That's because of the U.S. naval base located there. I gave it away, didn't I? Okay, then, no point delaying the answer. It's Guantanamo. City, Bay, and U.S. base all share that name. And today, by the way, marks the end of an era at the base. The last two Cuban employees there, ages 82 and 79, are retiring. For decades, thousands of Cuban workers have commuted the few miles that separate Guantanamo, the city, from the U.S. Guantanamo base. Liz Shevchenko directs the Guantanamo Public Memory Project. It's a nonprofit effort to literally collect the memories of anyone who worked at Guantanamo. She says Cuban employees are a big part of the base's history. Well, Guantanamo was built as we know it, was constructed from the ground up by uh, uh, thousands of Cuban workers. And every aspect of life was supported from flipping burgers to constructing roads. Um, and really, it's their work that created it as a, a sort of modern training site and as a, a full-blown military base. Who's doing most of that work now? Uh, mostly contract worker from uh, Jamaica and the Philippines mm. who uh, were brought in after Cuban workers were forced to sort of choose their loyalties between working on the base or remaining uh, in Cuba after 1964. So the workforce completely changed uh, after that point, and Cuban nationals are, uh, for the most part, you know, have not been working on the base for quite some time. So there's an ongoing conference on Guantanamo in New York this week, just beginning the process of drawing together all these oral histories that you're working on. What impresses you, Liz, about their experiences? What stands out for you in their stories? The important thing, I think, uh, about mm-hmm. these stories uh, is the perspective they provide uh, to people who only know uh, Guantanamo as a detention center and are not aware of the many different uh, roles that the base has played. Um, both in Cuban life and in American history. So their memories of uh, this as uh, one of the highest paying jobs in eastern Cuba, also their children who grew up there and knew no other home um, is a really fascinating story, the kind of sense of community and the sense of sort of sheltered existence that they treasure to this day. Um, And I think one of the other amazing things is the many uh, Cuban workers who have made it stateside um, keep in touch with each other. So uh, the bonds between them have been so strong that they keep in touch. Let's hear from someone who actually has worked at the military camp, uh, Alberto Jones. Uh, good to meet you. Um, how long have you or how long did you work at Guantanamo? Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. I started there in 1958, in the summer of 1958, 
and I left on October 22nd, 1962, the day of the missile crisis. But all together, my family, who pretty much everyone worked there, put in approximately 150 years service. Wow. And what did you do when you were working there, Alberto? Well, I started uh, flipping Hamburg and graduated uh, pushing papers at the GS2 in Public Works Center. And what was your relationship like with the Americans? It was very good traveling there as a, as a kid. It was being an Amer- another American, uh, which enabled me to, to go to the beaches, the pools, the stores. And then in 1958, I started as an employee. I got paid at the time, but I lost all of the other privilege. No more beaches, no more pool, which was limited only to Americans. Wow. So when you took your stories of working at Guantanamo back across the border to the Cubans who lived in the city of Guantanamo, what's their reaction to you? I mean, here is this guy who's like leaving communist territory and working for the Americans every day. Going across borders, as you said, did not mean anything because most of the people in southeastern Cuba depended on uh, the income coming from the base, which was the largest employer at the time. So you, you weren't really scorned then by anybody for working at the base? No, because it was a normal crossing uh, up until 1959. Uh, Cubans went in and Americans came out. What happened, the political environment began to break down. And then traveling in and between, we were caught between two struggling forces. The Cubans were not in love with us going at the base because of the conflict that made any one of us a potential enemy. And the American side would also um, keep a close eye on someone who they thought was not or could be a potential support of the Cuban government. We were actually in a no man's land. Interesting. And what is the attitude now in Guantanamo toward the military base? I mean, especially since the base started receiving all the terrorist suspects from around the, around the world. The base is not on the radar of the average Cuban in Guantanamo. They neither fear the base nor the people inside of the base. Alberto, what was the best day and worst day for you, uh, as far as you can recall, working at Guantanamo? Mm, my best day was visiting and spending time with my cousin as a kid. We didn't have access to pools and things like that. So as a kid, that was a fun time. My worst day on the base and probably up to today was October 22nd. I thought that was the last day I would be on Earth. The peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. That's why I choose to move by, um, to leave the base and be by my family. And that morning I called my mother, who was employed there as a maid, to ask her if she was aware what was going on. She said, yes. Uh, and I said, what are you doing? She said, no, I'm staying. I said, uh, this is war. So I'll call you back at noon uh, to get a final response. And I did. And she said, I'm staying. So I said, goodbye and good luck. Wow. And I said, 17 years after. That's why we need to salvage that story. There's too much pain, tears, and misery among people who prior to that were friends. And uh, I think it can be restored. And that's why I'm so honored for what Liz and others are doing. Liz, what do you hope the Guantanamo Public Memory Project will do? 
We're hoping that uh, it is going to build a greater public awareness of the longer history of the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo in order to open new public dialogue and investment in what happens in Guantanamo in the future. Liz Shevchenko with the Guantanamo Public Memory Project and Alberto Jones from Guantanamo, Cuba. Thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For most of its life, the Irrawaddy magazine has covered Myanmar from a distance. The magazine was launched in 1993 by a group of exiles living in Thailand. At the time, it was impossible for them to report openly in their own country, also known as Burma. But this weekend, copies of the magazine will hit the streets in Myanmar for the first time. Bruce Wallace reports from Thailand. The Irrawaddy office in Chiang Mai, Thailand, is quiet these days. Earlier in the week, a couple editors picked through copy for the English-language website. A Burmese reporter was just off the phone with an update on a broken-up demonstration. Still, there was cause for celebration. I look forward to seeing our readers inside the country reading the, the ARE magazine for the first time in public, legally. That would be, be very uh, exciting and you know, wonderful moment for me. Jawsaw Mo is English-language editor for the Irrawaddy. He says this new edition keeps the tone that had them banned for so long. We haven't changed anything in this issue. This is uh, as critical as ever of the government, authorities, and, and we're trying to you know, disclose uh, what we have seen, what we have thought about any issues inside the country. They do take up prickly subjects, ongoing ethnic violence in the west of the country, fragile ethnic peace in the east, and Myanmar-China relations among them. The cover shows Barack Obama with his arm around Aung San Suu Kyi, the opposition leader whose picture is now ubiquitous on the country's newsstands, a fact itself unthinkable a few years ago. Also unthinkable until recently was media of any sort, exile or otherwise, reporting openly in the country. For 50 years, the landscape was dominated by state mouthpieces like the New Light of Myanmar and weekly newspapers under the heavy hand of the censorship office. But reporting was happening everywhere when I was there last week. In fact, the reason Irrawaddy's Chiang Mai office is so quiet is because much of its staff has moved to Yangon, Myanmar's largest city. I think now we have uh, uh, 20 people uh, in a small office. The office is quite crowded you know, this time. A visit to Nazima, another exile publication on the other side of Chiang Mai, found a similar skeleton crew holding down the fort. They said they'd gone from 30 staff here and in India to nearly double that in Yangon. Both publications say they're still testing the waters. Myanmar's government's press office stopped pre-publication censorship in August, but watchers say there's a ways to go between here and true press freedom. Thea Saw is a longtime journalist in Yangon and a member of a new civilian-led press council. He says the next hurdle is getting the newspaper licensing process out of government hands. All these periodicals, they all still need license, and every license needs to be renewed at the end of every year. So if they don't like you or your paper, they may say, okay, sorry, we can't renew your license, revoking your license, or suspend the license. Okay, your license will be suspended two months, six months, whatever. The law is still there. The censorship is gone, but the old law is still there. Others worry that media, particularly returning exiles, are tempering their voice in the interest of getting along with the new government. There doesn't seem to be that much self-censorship, though, in Myanmar. The week I was there, papers ran regular graphic images from a government crackdown. On my last day, I was surprised to see one go after what people had told me was the last taboo, government corruption. Jaws on Mo got a taste of the new in-country media landscape in April. 
He was back for the first time in 12 years to report on Aung San Suu Kyi's campaign to represent a small township outside of Yangon. He estimates that the night before the election, there were 150 journalists covering the event. He was glad to see this freedom among reporters, and among people he interviewed, too. And they were also quite outspoken at the time, even the old people. And the, I actually, I, I still remember that I did interview the uh, one uh, old woman. She said uh, she said the oldest lady in the village. She was also very outspoken, and she voted for Aung San Suu Kyi, so things like that. Now, Irrawaddy, Mizima, and other media companies face a pressure that's new in Myanmar, but familiar elsewhere, trying to turn a profit in an increasingly crowded marketplace. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, Chiang Mai, Thailand. We end the week with two more musical favorites from 2012, picked by our guest DJs around the globe. We start with Marius Asp in Oslo, Norway, and his European selection. My favorite album this year is a collaboration between the Norwegian trio 1982 and American pedal steel legend B.J. Cole. Simply titled 1982 and B.J. Cole, this is the third album by the trio. And while their sound, a unique fusion of jazz, Norwegian folk music and more abstract soundscapes is most certainly intact, the string work of Cole adds a new color and texture to their sound. The pedal steel is a gentle but nonetheless expressive force and the result is both intimate and cinematic, both haunting and beautiful, but first and foremost unclassifiable. The album was recorded in a day in the Norwegian city of Bergen, and mostly improvised, with the four musicians playing live in the same room. That only makes this glowing and hypnotic piece of music all the more impressive. Hi, I'm Beto Arcos, and I'm here to tell you about Mexican singer Lila Downs and her album, Pecados y Milagros. This is my top album of 2012. This is Lila's seventh album and her finest moment, in my opinion. It's an album rich and full of original songs, a couple of traditional tunes, and classic Mexican rancheras. One of those rancheras is called Tu Carcel, or Your Prison. Lila sings this song as a classic Mexican ranchera, but the arrangement of the two guitars and the pairing of the horns create this kind of jazz-flavored ranchera, which gives it more weight and meaning. That's Lila Downs from her album Pecados y Milagros, my top album of 2012. Y nunca saldrás 
best of 2012 picks from guest reviewers Beto Arcos in California and Marius Asp in Norway. They actually gave us their top five picks of 2012, including the artists you just heard. You can see their top fives and those picked by our other DJs around the globe at theworld.org. The World's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. And before we go today, to the families and those affected by the terrible school shooting in Connecticut, our thoughts are with you. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International